New technologies such as artificial intelligence will have a dramatic effect on the global workplace over the next 10 years, with estimates of vast numbers of jobs lost and industries unable to adapt quickly enough due to skills shortages. In this episode of Board Agenda, we focus on the hard decisions business leaders will need to make in the near future to transform their workforce while still behaving responsibly and remain competitive. Our guest in this podcast episode is Deanna Mulligan, the former Chief Executive and Boardroom Chair of Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, who offers solutions to these issues in her new book, Higher Purpose, How Smart Companies Can Close the Skills Gap. Hello and welcome to the Board Agenda podcast. We often think the future is all about technology, artificial intelligence, big data, and robotics. They all loom large on the horizon for business leaders and workers alike. But do we have the knowledge and skills in the workplace to cope? Some estimates say the impending skills cap may run to tens of millions of jobs. So whose responsibility is it to set things right, to prepare people and ensure they not only stand a chance of making a living in a technologically driven world, but companies remain productive and competitive? My name is Gavin Hinks. Our guests believe they may have an answer. Deanna Mulligan is the former chief executive and boardroom chair of Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. And her new book, Higher Purpose, How Smart Companies Can Close the Skills Gap, is an attempt to answer this thorny problem. Welcome, Deanna. Thank you, Gavin. It's an honor to be here today. It's very good to have you with us. Let's push on with the first question, if I may. Your book is about the way technology is going to transform work in the future. What is the nature of that future, Deanna, and what is the scale of the challenge we face? Well, Gavin, I think we're seeing a little taste of the future during the shutdown that we've all experienced during this uh, coronavirus crisis in that we have seen many companies shift to more of an online business model, both in the way they deal with consumers, but also in the way that they deal with suppliers and others. And finally, in the way that employees work together and communicate with one another. So we didn't have, not very many of us were Zoom experts, you know, before the pandemic. And now that's the way everyone works. So I think that the future is here, connected via technology environment for both consumers and employees. And and what's the scale of this skills challenge you think we have? And how soon are we going to confronted by it? Well, McKinsey estimates that in the next 10 years, 350 million jobs globally will change significantly. That's that's a lot. And they further estimate that 75 million jobs will go unfilled because the skilled employees to do those jobs just won't be there. And and what can we say about what kind of jobs those are? What are those vacancies for? looming on the horizon? Well, their estimate is over the next 10 years. And I think some of those jobs we don't even know about yet. If you think about 10 years ago, what we might have predicted today's uh, quote, quote unquote hot jobs are, we wouldn't have been able to do it. And I think we don't even know yet the scope of how things might change over the next 10 years. But right now, companies are seeing shortages in all kinds of digital workers in things like customer experience design 
really trying to interpret how consumers want to interact with companies, even in um, what one might presume would be very basic skills like project management. There are so many large-scale change projects going on inside companies today that there aren't enough people trained on how to deal with change and how to help people adjust to change and help people learn new skills. So that's some of the things that we're seeing today. But 10 years from now, I would expect we would have a totally different shopping list for skills. And you, you mentioned the pandemic just now. What, do, what have we learned? What kind of detail has emerged about this jobs issue from the pandemic? One of the things we learned is that companies can be much more flexible and adaptable than perhaps they have been in the past or thought they would be. Many companies rushed things into production in order to help uh, you know, supplies. And so, for example, manufacturers shifted over their supply chain and their manufacturing techniques very rapidly to make things like masks and ventilators. And we saw employees learning new skills on the fly in order to help with you know, this crisis. I suppose one question, just to come back on you to that point, is that we, the changes come about in a crisis. And that's capacity that we have to hold on to as we move out of crisis. How do, how do we go about doing that? I think companies are going to continue to innovate moving out of the crisis. And you're right. Many of the skills and inventions and adaptations that have happened during the crisis will become permanent. And therefore, even in the next few years, we see employee jobs and the need for different skills changing just as we adapt to the crisis. So give us a rundown of your prescription of how to manage this looming issue. Well, for one thing, companies need to take more responsibility, and I think they are. They're realizing that there's a lot of conversation today, and I'm sure that's true among your readers as well, about what is companies' role in retraining employees. And I think it's going to be significant because of the statistics I cited earlier. 75 million jobs going unfilled in the next 10 years is not a tenable situation. So we need to make sure that people are trained for the jobs that are going to exist. So number one, companies do need to realize that they're going to be more responsible perhaps for training employees than they've been in the past. Number two is employees need to understand that they're going to have to take more responsibility for their future careers and spend some time being retrained. And that means they need to think hard about what their next career steps might be. They need to accept the fact that the job they're doing today might not exist in five or 10 years, and they need to be willing to prepare. Our educational institutions need to understand that employees are that their graduates are moving into a world where employees are going to be expected to be, if I might use the word, a little more entrepreneurial on the job than they have in the past. So in this crisis, you see it's really the frontline employees who have invented lots of new and different ways of doing things in order to make sure that their companies delivered. And so we're going to need people who are flexible and creative and willing to take initiative. And educational institutions, I think, have a part to play in that. And finally, governments have a role to play in rethinking their programs today. It differs by country, but almost every 
country in the Western world has some sort of reskilling or retraining program delivered through either their national or local governments and rethinking those programs and perhaps coordinating more closely with educational institutions and with companies is probably on the horizon if we want to make sure we meet these demands for new skills. Now, in in the book, you connect um, companies addressing skills shortages with defining their own purpose. But you also say that purpose can sometimes seem lofty and vague. And I wonder, how do you make purpose real and tangible? How did you do it at Guardian, for example? Well, I believe, Gavin, that people want to do something meaningful with their lives. And most of us spend the majority of our time at work. So I think it's the responsibility of leaders in companies to really connect what employees are doing on a day-to-day basis and connect the output of the company with some societal good or values. And we spent a lot of time at Guardian making sure people in the company knew how their jobs were contributing to the well-being of our policyholders and had them talk about what they experienced when they worked with us. That was very effective. We did customer videos. We had sessions where we had employees pretend they were customers and really go through live in front of a number of their peers, the customer experience. And when people can see how what they're doing on a day-to-day basis impacts real people outside the company, they tend to get very excited about change and about doing things differently and better. Most people want to do a good job. They want to show up every day, do something impactful for their fellow man and and get better. And what we did was just connect all of those things in real time for employees. And it tends to be highly motivational. Now, you're an advocate of uh, lifelong learning. Um, Many company leaders would advocate lifelong learning, but they might not think it was their responsibility. Their responsibility maybe uh, reach only as far as uh, training in relation to um, the jobs that they offer. Is Is there a broader responsibility for companies, do you think, in this area? Well, one of the reasons I wrote the book is to advocate for companies developing a learning culture. And certainly we did that at Guardian in a number of ways. We held uh, what we started with leader learning day across the company where we had our executive management team go to all the different frontline locations across the company and do a day of teaching and inquiry for employees. And then that was so popular, we decided to open it up to everyone. We trained career coaches in each location where employees could go and ask questions and think about, okay, where is my job going to be in the next several years? And if it's going to be changing, do I want to learn what I need to learn to continue to do this job? Or do I want to explore doing something differently? And that was all under the heading of we are a learning organization. And then we decided to make August learning month where we had seminars every day. Some were what we call bite size at lunchtime where people could take a half an hour and their brown bag lunch and watch an online seminar or attend, you know, something in their department about what is the future of work and jobs here and how they can participate. Again, that was extremely popular. And all of these things come under the heading of building a learning culture. 
Now, against the grain of much discussion, your book downplays the importance of um, college or what we'd call university degrees in favour of alternative credentials. Now, degrees have become um, controversial recently, including with the philosopher Michael Sandel. Why are other credentials important and why do they need boosting? Well, Gavin, you know, I would like to think that the book does not de-emphasize or downgrade the importance of a university education. Obviously, many of us are products of a university education and have a tremendous belief in the benefits. Rather, what we tried to say in the book was there are definitely going to be opportunities for people who did not have the benefit of a university education because there are certain jobs that can be taught on the job and perhaps students and employers both should think more critically about what they could teach to people who haven't had the benefit of college degree. And we definitely had examples of that at Guardian, particularly in our IT department, where we had people join us who didn't have a four-year degree, and particularly not a four-year degree in computer science. We taught them coding, and they could be productive and, you know, take an entry-level job at Guardian, and then take advantage of Guardian's educational benefits and tuition reimbursement programs and online programs to earn a college degree. And so for many people, particularly here in the United States, where tuition has become very, very expensive, that is an alternate path to success. And for companies, it's a way to really reach out to a broader, more diverse population than just those students who have completed university degrees. So it is a bit of a win-win. One of your approaches to reskilling at Guardian was to take call center staff, as you mentioned, then teach them coding. What, tell us about the principles that, that, uh, that underlie that decision-making. Well, we did teach the entire company and depending on your job and your skill level, Some people got a few hours of coursework and some people had a week and some people had a month, but we taught the entire company the agile development process, not because we wanted people to become coders, but because the upgrades we were doing to our IT systems and technology required a different way of working from almost everybody in the company. And the agile development process is very team-based. So we needed to pull, and it relies heavily on subject matter experts. So we needed to pull certain people out of their day jobs who were not in the IT department to join these teams to make sure that we could deliver, you know, in a short period of time and efficiently the right end product. So that's why we decided to train the whole company so that managers understood why it was that their employees were going to be asked to join these teams and work in a different way. And I do think that you'll see going forward as, you know, the world changes rapidly, going back to your first question about technology, that we are going to have to learn to work in new ways. And sometimes the existing hierarchy or org chart doesn't particularly fit the task to be done. And we need to be able to collaborate across functions and across business units And so that's why we trained everyone in the agile development way of working. Do you you think we are preparing quickly enough in general for the changes that we face? 
Well, you know, I think it depends. Some places in some departments are very well prepared and other places and other companies and other departments haven't thought about it enough. I do think, again, going back to the crisis that we're currently experiencing, that it's amazing what companies have been able to do if one had said to a group of chief executives, you know, a year and a half ago that in six months you're going to have a total shutdown and your employees won't be able to come to their place of work unless they're deemed essential, but your company will continue to grow and thrive, they would have said that's impossible. So I do believe when pressed, we can make these changes. I think that's one of the things this crisis has shown us. I, I, I guess the um, issue as we mentioned already, is sustaining that into a non-crisis period. And I, want, I, I think many leaders might think, well, somehow I've got to balance or uh, achieve this preparation with trying to deal with the here and now. And I, and I wonder how you do that, how you strike that balance or you manage the two things in tandem. You know, Gavin, that's a very good question. And it is going to require a different type of leadership and management than I think we've used in the past. I think leaders and managers are going to have to depend more on their frontline employees and on the people who do the jobs every day to tell them, okay, what needs to change? What's getting in your way? How can we make sure we keep up our current productivity but prepare for whatever challenges we have in the future. This is much more of a team-based learning uh, problem than it is a top-down leaders tell employees what to do problem. And, you know, let's face it, we're not really always very good at solving those kinds of problems. And so everybody needs to learn new skills here. It's not just employees, it's managers, leaders, CEOs as well. Now that's a very interesting point. Um, it, it's a it's a leadership skills issue as well as the frontline worker issue. I, I wonder if you know to those leaders who may be listening to this podcast, what would your tips be to go out and acquire these skills, or or at least the skills they need to acquire? That's a, a good question. I'm often asked. People say, "How do I develop a learning culture?" Mm. And I say uh, three things. First of all, start small. Don't attempt to change the whole company at once. Start small, pick a problem. Pick a problem that's facing you today and ask employees across the company what they see as, as the root cause of the problem. And if they had unlimited resources or a magic wand, how would they fix it? And then put a team together to, to brainstorm and try to solve it in this new way that we're talking about here with cross-functional teams, with people at the front line being given, you know, more responsibility than in the past. And for this small problem that you're using to get started in building a learning organization, you might have to throw more resources at it than you normally would. So start small, pick one problem. Then the second point is don't be afraid to fail. Likely, this team is not going to solve the problem on their first try. It may take several tries. And part of being a learning organization is being willing to fail. You know, there's people often cite the fact that when you started to walk as an infant, you fell down many times before you walked. And if you would have stopped the first or second time, we'd all still be crawling. You know, you need to let these teams fail and 
and kind of flounder their way through it. So start small, don't be afraid to fail. And finally, use this as a building block for continuous learning in the organization. I think leaders cannot uh, emphasize enough that we are all learning and we're all going to continue to learn here and we're going to make some mistakes along the way. It's inevitable because the future is unknowable and changing rapidly. So the way we're going to survive and flourish in this environment is to learn how to learn as a, as a team and as a company. And we're going to start small. We're going to make some mistakes, but we're ultimately going to be successful and leverage that into the next bigger challenge. Are you optimistic, Deanna? Because sometimes people predict a quite a dystopian future where jobs are taken by artificial intelligence and robots but, but here we're talking about a skills gap, a need for people. I am optimistic, and I do think that there's no getting around the fact that certain jobs that exist today are going to go away because of technology. I mean, that's been the way of history, right? I mean, if you look back thousands of years, it's always been the way. However, people always adapt, and they always find new and different things to do that are more productive for society, and that's how we move forward. So I am optimistic if one looks at history that we can be successful moving forward. And I hate to keep going back to the current crisis situation we're in, but we have been able to adapt. We've fumbled around, we've made some mistakes. Unfortunately, many people are unemployed whom we hope we can employ again soon, but we are moving forward and we are continuing to function as a society in really dire conditions we hadn't really anticipated. And the reason we've been able to do that is because companies have been able to adapt. And I think as this crisis hopefully subsides, we will be able to use those skills to really attack this skill gap. So I am hopeful. It doesn't mean that some jobs won't disappear and that there won't be pain. I hope there can be a minimum amount of pain, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book. But we will move forward as a society. There's no doubt. Deanna Mulligan, thank you very much. Your book, Higher Purpose, How Smart Companies Can Close the Skills Gap, is available on Columbia Business Publishing. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And thanks to the listeners too for tuning in. We'll be back again soon with more business insight. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was a podcast brought to you by Board Agenda. For the latest thinking about corporate governance, and to access a complete online resource for boards and directors. Register or log on at boardagenda.com. Thanks for listening.